Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. I want to discuss something really uh, essential, like one of the core, really core aspects to to being alive, um, which is, what do you do when you come face to face with your own limitations? I'm gonna, I'm gonna phrase that again because it's, this is really, this is all of life right now. What do you do, how do you react when you come face to face with your own imperfections? And how you answer that question is going to be very revealing about the life that you live. And I would tell you that most people, when they confront their own imperfection, when they confront their own limitation, what they do is they, they want to escape. They, they don't want to encounter their, their limitedness. And that escape can take many, many different forms. Um, probably uh, drug addiction is, is a very common form because in any form of addiction, any form of a distraction will, will do the trick. Um, eating, you know, eating can, can be the most wonderful thing in the world, but it can also be uh, a form of escapism. I, I don't know if you ever saw this written. There's, a, there's, this is such a complex little tidbit. But have you ever seen the words "food is love"? You know, when you eat food and you get such pleasure from the food, there's this instantaneous form of um, pleasure and and acceptance. And sometimes food can be a great escape. People can abuse eating, um, smoking marijuana. Uh, it's an instant escape. Um, all sorts of things, all, all, sort, all, all sorts of things can can provide that way out of of confronting your own limitation and working through it. Um, let's let's go deeper. There's a uh, a doctor. His name is Doctor Ferber. And um, if you have young children. Uh, you, you probably are familiar with Dr. Ferber, or they, they even made a, uh, a, a verb out of his name, to ferberize. So what does that mean, to ferberize? So basically, putting your kids to, to bed is, is, is a real challenge, especially when they're young, because they don't want to go to bed. And especially when they're, like, really, really young, they, you know, they can keep you up all night, and it can turn your entire life upside down. Rabbi Green once uh, shared with us, you know, a, a great observation. He says, you, you spend the first half of your kid's life trying to get them to bed, and then you spend the second half of your kid's life trying to get them out of bed. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, anyway, Dr. Ferber comes along with this book with a very radical new idea, and it's the following. He says that falling asleep, now we're talking about basically babies right now, you know, when they reach a certain age, when they're ready for his, his method. But that, here's the idea, that falling asleep is actually 
an acquired skill. Now, this, this, is a very, this is a very surprising idea because most people think or thought before he advanced this thought, most people thought that you get tired, you fall asleep. Where's the science? There's no science to it. You just fall asleep, right? But he says, no, no, no. The reason why kids are, certain kids just won't go to bed is because they have not acquired this skill of falling asleep. And then he recommends his method of of how to do it. And um, basically, I'll tell you, without being too mysterious, it's basically letting your child cry their way to sleep. <laughs> so it's in some circles, it's, it's somewhat controversial because basically you're just allowing your, your child to, to cry in his crib till he becomes so exhausted that they fall asleep. So you, he's got a whole method, how you check in with your child every few minutes. And it's a, it's a, I'm, I'm, I'm simplifying it and not, not to his uh, credit. In other words, it makes him sound kind of bad, but there is a slight aspect of cruelty in it from the parent's point of view because, because you are allowing the child just basically to become exhausted. But after a couple of nights of that, he says, the child learns how to go to bed and then the problem is solved. Now, whether the child is scarred for life, that's, a, that's, another, that's, a, that's another discussion. Um, but anyway, what I'm trying, the reason why I'm bringing this up is again to relate it to our initial question because again i really feel like this is one of the biggest questions in life and that we can ask ourselves how do you react when you come face to face with your own flaws okay now we said escapism is is and and the various forms of escapism is is usually what people do and the reason why i brought up Dr. Ferber here is because what what I want to share with you is that the ability to deal with your emotional discomfort when you make a mistake is an acquired skill. In other words, and people don't the reason why this is like a big thought or why I'm presenting this as a big thought is because most people don't share with each other how they work through in a, a problem or through pain emotionally. In other words, that's usually a private process that goes on and, and, and you never know what's going on in another person. In other words, you never know that this other person experiences horrible pain, something that you usually would run from, but they worked through it and they were able to go, okay, now I have a tolerance for this. Now I know what to do with myself next time this happens so I don't have to go and get drunk for three days, right? To dull the pain, to try to blot it out of my mind. And since no one is really sharing with each other, how it is that they actually get through this process, which all of us go through, the rest of us think, oh, it's like falling asleep. You get tired, you fall asleep. Where's the science? Ah, but there might be a science actually to it. 
it might be an acquired skill, just like falling asleep is an acquired skill, but you'd never have thought of that before Dr. Ferber advanced that thesis. So too, I'm telling you that there's another thing that we just assume is automatic and that we're the only ones like who are confronted with this problem because we have not acquired the skill yet of how to work through the emotional pain that comes when we confront our own limitations. And one must acquire this skill if one is going to be a real adult. Or, to put it another way, you will never become a more realized human being and grow spiritually to the heights that you're capable of growing until you figure out how to work through this pain when it comes up so that you don't have to can make a complete detour out of your life into some crazy direction. And it's hard. It's hard to confront the pain. And you have to go, you have to, you have to allow yourself to grieve over it. Like, wow, that really hurts. Wow. I'm, bless you. Wow. I'm, I'm in pain. I'm in pain. I remember, like a few years ago, something happened at, at work, you know? The job ended. I was so surprised, devastated. And I, I remember, as I was driving home, I said out loud as I was driving, I must have said it 20 times, this hurts so much. This hurts so much. This hurts so... I, I just kept on saying it out loud. And I remember that. And, and I remember how much that actually helped. It helped me so much, actually. I was by myself, I was driving. I was able to just kind of get this furnace of emotions that was like on fire inside of me. I was able to kind of get it out. And, and so I didn't have to run for some sort of like chemical distraction. Because I was able to actually kind of get it out. It's just one small example, but I'm sharing with you, you know, something personal here. Different people will have different ways of doing it. I know I'm, I'm not such an exercise guy, but I know some people are, can, can, can do this very successfully with exercise also. Because you're actually kind of literally working it out. You're literally working it out. So with this in mind, I want to relate this to um, a more classic Torah theme. But we're talking about the same thing. We're not changing subjects here. So we have these two tectonic archetypes, right? One is Yosef, Yosef Atzadik, the one who doesn't do anything wrong, right? The, 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 the amazing holy person who just somehow gets it right. Even through all the troubles, his brothers sell him into slavery. They want to kill him. He's made a slave. They, they, they frame him. He's then sent to prison. And this is over a period of 22 years. And, and then 
he rises to the top of the Egyptian ancient empire. I mean, school kids today are still learning about this empire that he was running. That, that's how massive and historic and just unprecedented it was. What a life. And throughout a straight path, life just like, just hits him like brutally from every angle. He doesn't bend. He stays perfect. Unbelievable. That's Yosef HaTzadik. Like very few people in Torah, like HaTzadik means the righteous one or the holy one. Very few people that they're, they're, after their name is there this sort of like this honorific title, right? Like when we talk about Yehuda, and we're going to talk about him right now, we don't say Yehuda HaTzadik. When we talk about Avraham Avinu, we don't say Avraham HaTzadik. So you have to understand that, that if Jewish history, if, if like sort of like just collectively just has embraced this name for Yosef, how great Yosef was. Like beyond. In many ways, just to understand Yosef, he's really like, this was never made official, but I'm just kind of telling you just as a way to understand him and put him into the proper context. You know, really we have Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and that's it. That's, those are the Avos, that's it. Those are the Holy Fathers. But, but in, in introducing, in introducing um, Yosef, it says, these are the generations of Yaakov, and the next word in the Torah is Yosef. Yaakov Yosef. And it's not just... By the way, he, there were older siblings than, than Yosef. So it's a little bit unusual that the, that the Torah says, these are the generations of Yaakov, Yosef. But the fact that there's no pause between Yaakov and Yosef shows you the greatness of who Yosef was. And that in some ways, although this is not official, it's really Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, and Yosef. Right? He really is kind of like, in a way, the fourth of the Avos. Although that was never official. But, but all the rabbis read into the fact that the Torah goes, Ele todos Yaakov, Yosef, that Yaakov goes right into Yosef, that that's very significant. And there's all sorts of amazing things that you can learn out from that. One thing that I, I noticed, I'll just share this with you. Before we get to Yehuda, we're still getting to Yehuda, but I, I just want to share with you just another thought about Yaakov and Yosef. So this is something that, that I noticed a few years back, which is that Yaakov and Yosef is actually the same name. So you say, wait a second, Yaakov and Yosef is not the same name. <laughs> what, are you, what are you talking about? So, so let's, just, let's just figure it out. So, so Yaakov is, is really like a two-part name. You know that um, Yaakov gets his name because when he was born, during that process, he was holding on to the heel, which is the word Ekev, Ekev of Yaakov, that's the, the, the majority of the letters of his name, spells the word heel, because he's holding on to the heel of Esav. Okay, that's, that's all well and good. So, so we have to think about that for a moment. So, so Yaakov really, we'll see in a few Parshas, in, in, um, in Parshas Vayechi, it begins with him having a vision of when Mashiach is going to come. 
So, so the, the three Avos, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, really, it's almost like a timeline of Jewish history, the three of them. Okay? And Yaakov represents the end of days because he saw the end of days. And this word heal, which is in his name, we did this demonstration before. I always like this demonstration. If you, you'll, you'll just have to picture it if you're listening online, which is imagine you're walking from one room to the other, right? When you, when you leave this, this, this room, the very last part of your body to leave the room is your heel, right? So one of, the day, one of the names, in other words, that room stands for this time period, and the next room stands for the Messianic time period. So the last part to leave the room is the heel. So interestingly, what do they call the last days before Mashiach come? Ikdei de Mashiach, which means, bless you, which means the heel of Mashiach. That interesting. That's what the final days are called. The end of days are called the heel. So again, this fits in with who Yaakov was, right? By the way, I heard that the three meals of Shabbos, also it's like a timeline with Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Friday night, that's the meal of Avraham, because Avraham was the first Jew. So you have the days of the week, and then all of a sudden, something changes. Like you have this new part of the weekly calendar, Shabbos, right? So the first thing is Avraham, just like he was the first Jew. It's the first moment of Shabbos. Yitzchak, I heard this from Reb Shlomo, Yitzchak never left Israel. He lived his entire life in Israel. So lunch, that's Yitzchak. Why? Because when you wake up at Shabbos, right? And then you, after lunch, you take a nap and you wake up from the nap and it's still Shabbos. So that's, that's Yitzchak. He spent his entire life in, in Israel. He never left the borders of Israel. And then you have Yaakov is Shalashudas, that's the third meal, because that's already, Yaakov already saw the end of days, right? And, and Shalashudas, all the Rebbe's say that Shalashudas is the holiest time of Shabbos. It's like the pinnacle of it. And Yaakov is considered the choice of the Avos, the holiest of the Avos. Anyway. So it's not just that Yaakov stands for the end of days. And I'll tell you one more thought, just while we're talking about this word heel and the word Yaakov. Rabbi Wolfson brings this very, very, very interesting thought that the last generation before Mashiach comes will also be like the heel. And, and what's the connection? Not just that it's the end, right? Okay, that's a simple connection, but let's go deeper. The heel is the most physically insensitive part of the body. Now, you, you think about the wisdom of God, that, that God made it that way. Can you imagine if God put your eyeball on your foot, <laughs> on the bottom of your foot, you're walking on your eyeballs? <laughs> right? Or your tongue is very sensitive. Can you imagine if you put your tongue on the bottom of your foot? <laughs> Stepping on your... Ah! You'd be in constant pain. But, but the most insensitive part to pain is on the bottom of your foot. Like, there are little things like this we, we don't, uh, we just take for granted. We don't think about how, how, how divinely constructed the human being is. 
So just like the heel is physically insensitive, Rabbi Wolfson says the last generation before Mashiach comes is going to be spiritually insensitive. So when you look around and you see all sorts of atheism and you see all sorts of assimilation and you see all sorts of, you know, people who are not affiliated, this actually makes sense. Because this is, this is the heel. This generation is the heel. Very, very spiritually kind of closed off. Right? At the same time, though, there's, they're, they're, they're the emissaries of the transition. So the, 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 the ability, if you can open up the hearts, the, 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 the potential that's there is, is off the charts. Right? But it's really, you're playing with extremes. Okay. So, so, so we only have the first part of Yaakov's name in terms of being the heel. There's another part of Yaakov's name. It's not just Ekev. It's the letter Yud attached to Ekev. Now, the, this Yud, remember, when you imagine the holiest name of God, it's the Yud Kevavke. Yud is the first letter of Hashem's holiest name. So, what you see in Yaakov is not just the bottom, like we've been talking about right now, but what you see is the bottom connected all the way to the top. That's the Yud of the Yud Kevavke. So you see how it goes from the top all the way down to the bottom. This is the greatness of Yaakov. Now I told you, we started off this whole thought by telling you that Yaakov and Yosef have the same name. How do you see it? Well, Yosef, his name also begins with the letter Yud, right? So again, that's all the way to the top. And then if you rearrange the last three letters of Yosef's name, it spells the word Sof, which means end. So just like Yaakov, it's going from the Yud, which is on the top, to the Ekev, which is the heel, which is all the way on the bottom. So to Yosef, starts with the Yud, which is the top, and it goes all the way down to the south, all the way down to the end. And it says, Yaakov gave over everything to Yosef. And you see their, their end parts in, in, in very striking ways. And we'll just do this, and then we're going to get to Yehuda. Listen to this. See, almost the opposites, opposite reactions to Egyptian enslavement, but... Same idea. So what, what, what are the things? When Yaakov goes down into Egypt, before he dies, he says, you got to get me out of here. <laughs> Don't keep me in Egypt. Get me to Mor Samach Pela, which is the cave of the patriarchs where Adam and Eve are buried, where Avram and Sarah are buried, where Rivka and Yitzchak are buried, where Yaakov and Leah are buried. Right? As well as the head of Esau, right? According to the Medrash. So the Zohar says that, the, that that cave of the patriarchs, that's the entrance to the Garden of Eden. So you, you have Yaakov going from Egypt to the Garden of Eden. He's sort of like blazing a trail for the entire Jewish people to go from Egypt to redemption. Okay? Remember, Yaakov's name is also Yisrael, Israel. So whatever's happening to Yaakov, 
it's representative of everything that's happening to the Jewish people. Because his name is Israel as well. Okay. So, so how does Yosef react to Egyptian, to the, the coming Egyptian slavery? Yosef, Yaakov is like, get me out of here immediately. Yosef says, keep me here till the end, to the sof. And then when you leave, there's a redeemer that's going to come. And then when you leave Egypt, take my bones, but keep me here with you till the end. And I'll stay with you till the end, and then I'll leave with you. Another version of the end. With Yaakov, we have the ultimate end. We have the connection to the end of days, to the Garden of Eden, right? With Yosef, it's a little more targeted, a little more in the here and now. As long as you're in Egypt, right? I'm with you. And remember, Reb Shlomo said something very interesting, because you see something, again, extraordinary about Yosef's life. When Yosef was in Egypt, you ready for this? He was the only Jew in exile. Can you imagine that there would be such a thing as, like, only one Jew is in exile? Because the rest of the family was in Israel. So, Reb Shlomo says, where do we till this day, you and me right now, where do we till this day get the strength to remain Jews in exile from Yosef? And I just want to add on to Reb Shlomo's Torah there. Yosef is the Gamatria Tzion. Tzion means Yerushalayim. Same, same number, Yosef and Tzion. So, so here you see that another aspect of Yosef's greatness, that even when he's outside of Egypt, he's still, all of his essence is still connected to Tzion. Right? Because it's the same, same number. Okay, so, so again, let's, let's go back to, to the initial part of this talk because there's a very, very big point to make about Yosef and Yehuda. So again, let's rephrase the question. What do you do when you come face to face with your own limitations, with your own flaws? How do you react, right? Do you work through the, 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 the pain, or do you jump at an opportunity to escape the pain through drugs, through some weird form of entertainment, through whatever it is, so that you don't have to work through the pain? Now, I want to tell you something, and this is, this is a very big idea, very, very big idea right now. I learned this from my father, and... He was a psychologist, and he, he did lots of different forms of psychology, and he worked with, um, you know, drug addicts, recovering drug addicts, things like this. And he told me something that really made a giant impression, and I'm sharing it with you. Because I never saw this written anywhere. Not that I've read so much on the topic, but here's the thought. He was telling me about someone who started using drugs when they were 13. Again, to escape the pain, right? They stopped, I don't know at what age, let's say they stopped at age 30, okay? So when they stopped at age 30, 
He said to me, this person who's 30 years old, you look at them, they look like a 30-year-old, right? This person emotionally is 13 years old. Because when one doesn't allow themselves to acquire this skill, right? Remember the Ferber method that people think that, oh, you get tired and you fall asleep. Ferber said, no, no, no. It's a skill to know how to fall asleep. If one doesn't acquire the skill of learning how to work through emotional pain, they don't emotionally mature. So if a 13-year-old, to escape the, the turmoil, and I'm being very sympathetic. I mean, this, it's hard to acquire this skill, by the way. I'm not, God forbid, I'm not being judgmental or slighting the person who doesn't know how to do it. Oftentimes they call this self-medicating, by the way. That's a very, you know, popular term. The 13-year-old who, who doesn't learn this skill, even though his body ages to 14, to 15, to 18, to 25, to 30, stays a 13-year-old on an emotional level. Until a person figures out how to deal with their emotional pain and any trauma, any trauma that happened to them in life, they stay emotionally arrested. Now, why do we, why do we want to escape this pain? Why don't we why don't we want to confront it? So, there are many, many reasons. There are books full of reasons, you know? But I want to give you my reason. And I, I'm, I'm talking on a spiritual level right now. But I think that, you know, there's a psycho-spiritual dynamic that, that, that motivates all of us and, and that if we really want to understand ourselves, we have to understand what our spiritual dynamics are. Otherwise, I don't think we'll truly appreciate who we are and, and the decisions that we make or, or don't make. So I want to suggest something, which is that we have a piece of God within ourselves that's called our soul. All of us have this soul. This is a piece of God in us. Now, God is perfect. That means that we have a little taste of perfection inside of ourselves. A little taste. And we understand intuitively, on a soul level, that this is the most precious part of us. And we want this aspect of ourselves to be the dominant part of our lives. Right? Because it's so special, it's so holy, it's so good, it's so pure. Of course, intuitively, on a deep level, we want this to be our lives. So we want perfection from ourselves. And then when we don't experience perfection, when we experience our limitations, there's like this cognitive dissonance. We like don't know how to reconcile those two things. How do I put it together? I know that there's an aspect of perfection inside of me. How do I deal with the fact that I've fallen short of it? 
I, I don't know how to react. I don't know what to do. I, I, I can't think about it. I, I, I have to run. In other words, what I'm saying is that, that, that this, this desire for perfection is, is not coming necessarily, necessarily from an ego maniacal place. Oh, look at me, I'm so great, I'm so perfect. It doesn't have to be coming from that place in order for it to be real inside of us. It can be coming from a very pure holy place, actually. We don't want to fall short. Okay, so now we're ready for Yehuda. Now Yehuda, again, we've got two giant archetypes among the brothers. We've got Yosef at Sadiq, who never makes a mistake. And then we have Yehuda, who makes, who makes mistakes. He makes mistakes, but he does tshuva. He, he fixes it. He, 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 he finds out what it is that he did wrong and, and, and he makes himself better. He corrects it. He works with it. He acknowledges his failing and then he makes himself better. Now here's my question. Because when I learned this, maybe it was one of the greatest days of my life. When Reb Shlomo pointed out the fact that who do you think Mashiach comes from? Yosef, the one who never makes mistakes? Or Yehuda, the one who does make mistakes and fixes them? Who do you think Mashiach comes from? The ultimate redeemer. And the answer, and when, when, when you hear this, it's like you can... You, you can't stop loving Torah, you can't stop loving God. Because the answer is Yehuda. Mashiach comes from Yehuda, the one who makes mistakes. <clears throat> but the one who confronts it and deals with it and fixes it and comes back. This is, this is an incredible thing. This is an incredible thing. You know why? Because it takes a big burden off of our shoulders. You don't have to be perfect. God didn't make you perfect. The question isn't, are you going to make a mistake or not? You are going to make mistakes. I'm going to make mistakes. Everyone's going to make mistakes. And by the way, you think I'm saying that? You know who said it? Shlomo Amalek said it. He says, there's no righteous person in the world who doesn't make a mistake. King Solomon, the wisest person, said it. There's no such a thing as a person, even a tzaddik, who doesn't make mistakes. Or a mistake. And you know what he says in another place, Shlomo Melech, King Solomon? He says, you, you know who it's... He says... A tzaddik, a righteous person, falls down seven times in this world and gets back up. Now, that is an amazing definition of the word tzaddik. 
Because if you ask me what a tzaddik is, I would tell you a tzaddik is someone who never makes a mistake. Like Yosef a tzaddik. But Shlomo Melech is giving a radically different definition. He's saying it's someone who falls down seven times. Remember, seven is the number for this world. Like the world's created in seven days. So seven can mean all the time, by the way. It doesn't just mean seven times. It can mean all the time. A tzaddik is someone who falls down seven times and gets back up. You know what that means? That means the definition of a tzaddik, according to King Solomon, is not, did you make a mistake? It's, did you get back up? (laughs) And if you got back up, even after your seventh mistake, whatever that means, then you're a tzaddik. You know, and sometimes that takes holy chutzpah to come back to God and say, all right, God, I don't know how many times <laughs> this is now, but I'm not going to stop knocking at your door. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to stop. And I know I messed up, and I know I messed up again, and, and I know I said I wasn't going to mess up again, and I know I still messed up, and I know I should be too embarrassed to stand up and come back. But I'm not stop knocking at your door, God. I'm just not going to stop. That person who was just talking a second ago, that's a tzaddik. So you say, well, wait a second. I mean, you know, we're into this whole kind of cult of perfection, right? But let's, let's, go, let's go deeper. Let's go to the beginning of time right now, okay? One of the deepest things I ever heard Reb Shlomo say for me was if the Garden of Eden was so perfect, what was the snake doing there? Right? In other words... Why are you putting a snake in the Garden of Eden if the Garden of Eden is so perfect? It wasn't perfect. God created us to finish off creation, to co-create perfection as God's partner. And we did that by being fallible, and yet, Somehow finding the strength to do the right thing. To say no to the snake. Right? But it's not meaningful to say no to the mistake, to say no to the snake, unless we can say yes to the, mis- to the snake. You know? That's why, that's the deeper meaning, as I understand it, between the fact that Nachash, which means snake, is the same gematria as Mashiach. Can you imagine? Like, it sounds like two opposites. How can the word Nachash, which means snake, which is the source of all evil, be the same gematria as Mashiach, the, the ultimate redeemer? What does that mean? It means when we harness the power of the snake, meaning to say, when we use our free choice to say no to the snake, That's Mashiach. 
then we bring Mashiach energy into the world. But the point is, you see, from the very beginning, even the Garden of Eden wasn't perfect. And then let's go back even further. You want to go back even further? Let's go back even further. How about the first day of creation? Let's go back to the first day of creation. So there's a very famous thing in the Torah, really one of my favorite things in the Torah. It's numbering the first seven days of creation, and God tells you what happened on each of the seven days of creation. Remember, remember the, uh, just in terms of the age of the universe, in case you have that question, God didn't hang the sun and the moon into the sky until the fourth day. So no less than the Vilna Gon says the first three days of creation can be billions of years. Right? So we don't have any problem on a Torah true level of understanding the universe is billions of years old. Okay? And it syncs with the Torah 100%. There's no problems, whatever. In fact, a student of the Ramban, Rabbi Ari Kaplan brings, and we're talking about right now around the 1200s, right? 1100s, 1200s. He was already saying that the world was 14 billion years old, which is more or less what scientists are saying today. This was almost a thousand years ago he was saying this based on Kabbalistic sources. Okay? A student of the Ramban said it in the year 1200, 1100, but Rabbi Kaplan brings it in a book called The Age of the Universe. Immortality in the Age of the Universe. But what's the point? In numbering the days of creation, God says... Yom Echad, which means one day. And then the rest of the days are Yom Sheni, Yom Shlishi, Yom Ravi, which means the second day, the third day, the fourth day. Well, wait a second. We've got a grammatical inconsistency. The first day is called one day or day one. And the second day is the second day. So we have something in English. It's called cardinal numbers and ordinal numbers. You've got one, two, three, four, and you've got first, second, third, fourth. Make it consistent. If the rest of the days are going to be second, third, fourth, then the first day should be first, <laughs> not one and then second. <laughs> you understand? They're out of whack. So the rabbis are all over that. They're like, well, what's going on here? What's this one day here? Why isn't it Yom Rishon? Why is it Yom Echat? So they say something so deep. You ready? They say that Yom Echad, one day, one day out of the year, doesn't have any sudden energy connect, connected to it, any negative energy connected to it. And, you know, the, the, the Gemara doesn't give so many gematrias, but they give some. So here's one of the gematrias, and this is coming from the Gemara, Okay. So the Gemara says that the word Hasatan, which means the heavenly accuser, right? Hasatan is Gematria 364. How many days are there in the year? 365. That means there's one day without this Satan energy. And what day is that? Yom Kippur. Okay, now let's put all these thoughts together right now. I said, God, 
God created the world. It wasn't perfect in the very beginning. It was ra- God, God made us to finish it up and to bring perfection into the world together, that we were going to exercise our free choice. And by saying no, when we could say yes, that finishes up creation, right? We harness the Nachash energy and we turn it into Mashiach energy. Okay, but you see it before the Garden of Eden. You see it on the first day of creation because the rabbis are already saying Yom Echad means Yom Kippur, which means what? Which means from the very first day of creation. Remember, human beings are created on the sixth day. On the very first day of creation, God is already making Yom Kippur. What do we need Yom Kippur for? To atone for our mistakes. (laughs) In other words, on the very first day of creation... Day one, God is already saying, I'm going to create people who are going to make mistakes and are going to need forgiveness. Day one. Billions of years before human beings are created. (laughs) According to that way of learning. God is already accounting for our fallibility and creating and implanting creation with the means to fix us, to heal us. You know, this time of year, when we're learning about Yehuda and Yosef, we could really be learning about them any time during the year. But the greatness of Yehuda, the greatness of falling down, and I mean, he did more than fall down. He basically was on the verge of ruining everything. Because basically, why, did he, why was Yaakov grieving so much when he, when, when, Yosef, when he thought Yosef died? Because Yaakov understood that he needed all 12 sons to be tzaddikim. That basically, you know, we have 12 constellations. We've got these 12 sons. They're going to produce 12 tribes. This is the DNA. This is the building block, spiritually speaking, of the entire universe. Yaakov understood if one of them is missing, the whole thing falls apart, that he failed. Can you imagine being the greatest of Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. You have this grandfather, Avraham, who's basically with Sarah, you know, changes the entire world almost single-handedly. Then you've got Yitzhak, right, who keeps the legacy going in the the most amazing way. The Akedas Yitzhak gives up absolutely everything, just doesn't hold on to an iota, an ounce, an atom for himself, gives it all to God. And now you're Yaakov, and you endured everything that you endured. You endured Esav, you endured Lavan, you endured everything. And now the whole thing, not just your life, but the legacy of everything that's been going on, falls apart? There's an amazing Rashi that says that the brothers turn to Yehuda. We're talking about Yehuda. 
turned to Yehuda and said to him, If you had told us not to sell Yosef, we would have listened to you. Why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you tell us not to do it? You know, to me, this is like the greatest, the greatest single antidote to peer pressure. Next time you feel like your friends are socially pressuring you into something that you know in your heart is not right, remember these words. The brothers turned to Yehuda and they said, if you had told us not to sell Yosef, we would have listened to you. Why didn't you tell us? So Yehuda basically at this point is more or less bearing the responsibility of everything falling apart. Because if, if, if Yehuda had stood up and been the prince that he was, been the king that he was, because the kingly line comes from Yehuda. He had been the king that he was and had asserted himself a little bit more. Yosef wouldn't have been sold. And Yaakov wouldn't be in this existential dilemma of feeling as though everything, everything, everything had fallen apart. But Yehuda comes through. That's the good news. That's the amazing thing. Yehuda finds a way to get back up and to save the day. Yehuda saves the day. And you talk about confronting your limitations, right? Yehuda does it, works through it, and rises. So again, why are we reading this story this time of year? So I want to suggest the following. This is the time of year when the nights are the longest. You know, nighttime usually is associated with what we lack. You know, nighttime can get very, very lonely. can get very, very sad. You know, in, in writing, we have, when a, when a character reaches his low point, there's a phrase in writing called the, that the character goes through the dark night of the soul. Right? That's, that is, night symbolizes your motion, emotional and spiritual bottom. You hit bottom, that's night. So we're learning about Yehuda during the longest nights right now. And you want to hear something interesting? Every month, Kabbalistically, has a different fixing. Like, for instance, Tammuz, the fixing is the eyes. You have to fix the eyes. That's the time when the spies went out to spy out the land. So it makes sense that that would be the fixing of the eyes, Tammuz. Um, Av is the fixing of the ears. You know, that's when the spies came back and they gave their report, their negative report, the, the Lashon Hara that we listen to. So it makes sense that Av would be the fixing of the ears, right? Every month has a different fixing. Kislev, where we are right now with the darkest nights, 
You know what the fixing for Kislev is? Sleep. Isn't that interesting? This is the time when we fix sleep. So what does it mean to fix sleep? I, I, I can't give you the official answer, but I'll just tell you what, what I'm thinking on the subject. I think that maybe you could say there are two types of sleep. One, one kind of sleep is I give up. I'm going to sleep. I, I can't deal with it anymore. I, don't, I, I give up. I'm going to sleep. That, that's, that's one type of sleep. That's a type of sleep that needs fixing, maybe. You know, there's another type of sleep. I always like these words from Shakespeare. To sleep, perchance to dream. Right? That's a, another type of sleep where you use the opportunity to recharge your battery, to recharge your soul, and you go, okay, I'm maxed out right now, but I'm going to go to sleep in order to have more energy so that I can really attack the problem, attack the problem fresh in the morning. And get up early, like the Shulchan Aruch says, I'm going to rise out of bed like a lion. Right? That's, that's, that's halacha, by the way, guys. You have to get out of bed in the morning like a lion. It's on the first page of Shulchan Aruch, the code of Jewish law. And by the way, all the different tribes are likened unto animals, just about. Do you know who's likened to a lion? Yehuda. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> right? This is the person who doesn't give up. That means the act of waking up in the mo- out of bed is an act of not getting up, giving up. For many people, it's very hard to get out of bed in the morning. I have a tremendous, if you know people like this, you understand this is not a joke. This is depression. And getting out of bed in the morning is, a, is an act of tremendous courage and bravery to be able to face another day. It's not a small thing at all. These are quiet heroes among us. You don't really know who they are, but these are people who somehow claw themselves out of bed. But, but the very act of waking up like a lion, at that moment, you're like Yehuda. You say, you know what? Okay. Everything might be going south. That's today. What about tomorrow? I remember there was a period in my life I was unemployed for a while and I was watching my bank account go down, 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 down. And I thought to myself, what's, what's going to be? And then I broke out in this big smile. I can picture myself having this thought. I'll tell you where I was walking. I was walking on West End Avenue and 73rd Street. Walking uptown. All of a sudden, I broke out in a big smile. I said, you know what? The one who gave me all that money to begin with can still give me, can give me more money. <laughs> What's the problem? <laughs> okay, right now it's heading down. Who says it can't head up? And this is also the time of year during these long nights of Hanukkah. All these things are divinely constructed. They're all divinely constructed. 
the light and the darkness, right? So, I just end on this one thought. We have this concept of hitter mitzvah, which means the beautification of a mitzvah. And by base Hillel, an aspect of the beautification of lighting the menorah is you light one candle one day, two candles the second day, and on the eighth day you light eight candles. Right? So the idea is that you want to increase in light, and that's, that's a beautification, because you want to increase. So, so that's very easy to understand. But it's more challenging to understand Beis Shammai. Beis Shammai is also Torah. Beis Shammai says on the first day you start with eight candles, the second candle, second night you do seven candles, and on the last night you have one candle. And by the way, if you're, like, it's a little mind-bending. It's like, <laughs> what? What's he thinking? Well, first of all, just to give you a technical answer, then I'm going to give you a more spiritual answer. To give you a technical answer, he's aligning the order of the candles with the offerings that we bring on Sukkot. Because on Sukkot, the number of offerings that we bring goes down and down and down and down till we get to Shmini Atzeris, and then we're not bringing anything. Okay, and there are all sorts of very deep reasons why that's the case. We won't go into it right now. But let's get back to the menorah. If the idea of hitter mitzvah, beautification of the mitzvah, is, is connected to the menorah, what beautification does Beis Shammai bring to the world by only having one candle the last night? So I want to suggest the following. That on the last night of Hanukkah, you realize the oneness of God. That there's one light, there's one unified light in the world that's powering and behind absolutely everything. And at the end of this holiday, that becomes fully revealed. The oneness of God. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions I'd love to hear him.